0: Is a porn parody called Robocop. Fuck, how do you know that? I'm a man of the world and I know things. All right, team. Hello and welcome to episode 11 of Double Reel, the monthly podcast magazine that reaches out to nerds everywhere and gives them a golden ticket to enter the magical world of film. It's March 2021 and we look forward with excitement to unfamiliar delights, such as meeting other people in small groups to eat and drink outside and eventually watching films at the cinema again. We're here to keep you company on the journey to a bright future of being pissed off about something other than COVID. My name's James Adamson and I'm an ordinary member of the public with no standing in the media or the film industry. What I do have is a geeky love of film and obscure stories from the world of cinema and a lot of opinions. Joining me on the podcast is my co-host, also called James Adamson. Welcome, James. Uh, Thank you very much for having me, and it's uh, good to
1: be here. Each month, we aim to bring you a range of features from the film world, split into two reels for those of you
0: who like to take an intermission between installments of film content. If you want to comment on the podcast or with your thoughts on the world of cinema generally, you can reach us on Twitter on at FilmAnorak73, or search for Double Reel Film Podcast, which should take you to our profile. There's also an Instagram called Double Reel Podcast, and a Double Reel Podcast Facebook page for you to follow if you're that way inclined. Here's what's coming up in episode 11. First up, there's a roundup of a month in the life of two busy film nerds with some film news, a look at how we're living up to our New Year's resolutions for the world of film, and a look at some of the notable films we watched since the last episode. Then it's time for Classics and Recommended, where we try to
1: get away from an endless diet of TV repeats and instead get round to something from our backlog of great films we haven't seen yet.
0: This month, it's time for a look at the neo-western heist thriller Heller or Highwater. Our Hidden Gem feature draws your attention to a lesser-known film that deserves a wider audience which this month is the overlooked and underrated Dark City. Then we turn to the one that got away and look at a tall tale of a potentially great
1: film a top director tried and failed to bring to the big screen. For episode 11, we're covering Hollywood's various
0: failed attempts to adapt Neil Gaiman's Sandman. We close the first reel of this episode with the remake Hate Watch, which this month looks at the entirely unnecessary 2014 reboot of Robocop. After a brief intermission, the second reel of this episode will feature the Big Conversation, in which the Addisons tackle a topic from the
1: film world in more detail. In episode eleven we discuss whether TV has overtaken film as an art form or whether the big
0: screen is still the ultimate experience. But first, some messages from listeners, aka the Podcast Magazine Letters page. People have been responding on the socials to our features for this month regarding our classic Hello High Water. Viral says it's an epic cinematic masterpiece. A sentiment echoed by Josh, Jessica, Manuel, Rihanna. Not that one I don't think. NC5 said special mention to the soundtrack by Towns van Sant, which is great. Uh, Donnell wrote about a hidden gem. I love Dark City's mix of film noir and sci-fi, and Zayn agrees. The Robocop remake has attracted some comments as well. I notice our remake, hate watch often gets like the most traffic when we put it up. David Dash says it wasn't as good as the original, but I still liked it. Everardo liked it as well, and uh, Jason liked Michael Keaton's performance. Mostly negative reviews across the board, really, though. Ryan says it's one of the worst remakes out there. Likewise, Raymond, David, and Tor. Karen says the original is a classic. The remake is the karaoke version at best quite so also some love for the Sandman on the socials Shah says I adore Sandman glad they're doing a tv version rather than a film Jonathan says I think they'll be hard pressed to match the audible adaptation which is almost a complete version of the original series with an incredible cast including James McAvoy Riz Ahmed Samantha Morton Taron Edgerton and Andy Serkis I think the unlimited budget and audio only production might help them there. Spug gets in touch with some overall feedback, really enjoying the podcast. How about you do a feature on extreme Asian cinema, starting with Itchy the Killer? Now that is extreme cinema. And finally, our old friend N.Y. Macam reaches out about our big conversation topic. I agree that TV has closed the gap on film and possibly overtaken it. Having said that, I tend to watch a small number of great TV shows over and over, because not everything coming out is brilliant. They just learn to make it better or look better with music and production values. And the time commitment on a TV show means you can spend hours and hours on something before you realize it's shite. At least with a film, it's done in two hours, and you can often see it's garbage 15 minutes in. Thank you to everyone for your messages. They're much appreciated. Now, on with the podcast. Now for our monthly roundup of a month in the life of two busy film nerds. We look at any major film news that's breaking this month and how we've been getting on fitting in movie watching with our busy, exciting lives. As well as that, we made some film-related New Year's resolutions for 2021, and we'll be checking in on whether we've managed to keep them up. So, James, what uh, news have you noticed since we last recorded? Obviously, the Golden Globes were Yeah, that awarded. was going to be my first one.
1: I think that's the only thing I've noticed, because obviously film, like we've said before, is just kind of... Died on died on its ass. There's not really many. There's films being made and discussions about films being made, etc. But. but nothing, nothing's an event anymore, isn't it? Well, they're filming. Um, this is a, this is a very niche bit of film news, but they're filming a Tetris film. Did you know about this?
0: No, that feels like scraping the bottom of the video game. Scott, uh,
1: we just mentioned him a minute ago. Taron Egerton. Egerton. Yeah, and he uh, they, they they filmed some of it in uh, Aberdeen, where I've lived for some time, and you've been many a times. Yeah because and this pissed off a lot of residents of Aberdeen but they went to the Tilly drone area of Aberdeen which gets a bit of a bad rap for being quite deprived and you know being a bit rough and people on Facebook were losing their fucking minds saying oh, they think it's okay to film here because it looks like a communist bloc, blah, blah, blah. And people were just saying, oh, it's good that they're you know, filming in Aberdeen and bringing some you know income to the city. Yeah. And people were like, oh, I don't think it's good. It's making it look like a Soviet communist bloc. How can people be happy with that? And I was like, oh, go and fuck yourself, you miserable. If there was ever a sentence to sum up Aberdeen, it would be that, people being miserable, at people coming to the city.
0: Yeah, but they film whatever they like. I mean, I heard that on, you know, you go with Residents Association Facebook. I mean, I mean, I live in a little small place outside London now and um the they were filming in the 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 motor the well roadside cafe car park uh, a couple of miles away um to do top boy now top boy is obviously meant to look like grim in a city kind of you know death is ever, and, and never more than an instant away and and it's only a mile away from a little place where we've got like a little village shop and you know a a, a field with rabbits in it and it's just if the location works it works right yeah well, yeah, and I think the shots that they managed to get actually looked quite good. They used them, um, there's
1: a there's a few kind of 1970s high-rises in Aberdeen and it looks quite Soviet and communist <laughs> yeah well,
0: and, Yeah. You can make anything look like anything these days, can't you?
1: Because wanting to look like modern capitalism is so much better.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's right, yeah. I, <sighs> so, yeah, I mean, in terms of the Globes... Um, I noticed Chloe Zhao is uh, is making a bit of a splash. She directed Nomadland. For which, Nomadland, which one of the things, yeah. Chloe Zhao. Sorry, go ahead, mate. So I've just I've not seen a lot of the films on this. Um, no, it's hard in the awards season now because they're not they're not out anywhere. Um,
1: Chadwick Boseman obviously won the posthumous globe. Um, I've not seen any other performances, but it feels like he might win the Oscar as well, just because it's you know the, there's obviously that kind of sentimentality yeah. for there, and then yeah, seen, right I'll probably there. give it a watch now.
0: Yeah, I mean, it it might be his best work, or they might just say, well, we've missed the chance to give it to him for his best work.
1: I don't know what his best work would be after this. He was quite good in um, The Five Bloods, and he was quite good in... um, What was he in? He was in that.
0: Well, he played James Brown, didn't he? In in, That's
1: it, James Brown.
0: Yeah. Which I
1: thought would have got more attention, but didn't really get it. The only thing I have a, a slight ilk and kind of annoyance is that Borat's subsequent movie film won Best Musical or Comedy over Hamilton. Like,
0: yeah, I mean, go and is, fuck yourself. That's fucking disgusting. The, the thing is, in what universe can you adequately compare musicals and comedies to each other in in a category like that? It's like, it's like it's com- comparing two completely different things. It's, that's just one of the quirks of the Golden Globes. Because um, no, it's because Borat subsequent movie
1: film Borat Two. I'm not saying that every fucking time was very. The jokes were quite lazy and stuff that I've seen done before. Yeah. But because he was being edgy and having a go at Trump voters and things like that and having a go, go against, you know, these conspiracy theorists, it was jokes that weren't very funny and quite lazy. And it was all the same stuff that he'd done in the first one. Make thick mm. people look stupid. Make Americans look stupid because they don't yeah. do that enough of, it, of, of enough of that already. And but it wasn't it was not better than Hamilton. And then Sasha Baron Cohen won for playing Bora instead of Lin-Manuel Miranda for playing Hamilton.
0: Yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't make any sense. But I mean that that whole oh, that God whole category man. doesn't make any sense. Do you remember when Martian won best comedy? Did it win or was it just nominated? Yeah, it won the. Be, it was the. It was. <sighs> it won best comedy. For it's like six. what? And Ridley Scott's going. Did we make a comedy, lads? Yeah, but never but people mind. People died. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> Um, I'll tell you what I did like about the Golden Globes. Uh, John Boyega's acceptance speech. Uh, he, he was in Small Acts, which I think is one of the TV characters. I mean the sprees. TV one, yeah. Yeah, but his performance was really good. His, uh, his speech was really good where he's going, he's only in formal attire from the waist, waist up because he's do- joining it on Zoom. Uh, and it also means now millions of Americans are trying to work out what the fuck tracky bottoms are. <laughs> no, to be
1: honest, the only TV show that I've seen out of that list, well, The Mandalorian was nominated for... Uh, best television shows and that should have won over the crown because the crown's a heap of fucking shit
0: it's... yeah the crown seems to have jumped the shark a little bit now I don't, I don't think it i don't think it's as easy to kind of be that show when you're talking about very recent events but i cannot wait for the like the season of the crown that's
1: depicting what the fuck's going on right now <laughs> i don't yeah if they ever get around to it oh i hope they do it'd be incredible that that deserves i think it just needs to start with do you remember when they thought the queen was dead or someone rumoured someone in a WhatsApp group leaked that the Queen was dead and it was this guy called Gibbo posting this big message saying the Queen's Guard have been called in at 5am blah 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 and all this stuff and the the profile picture of the group was a massive cock
0: (laughs) I (laughs) do remember that now
1: could you imagine
0: that being the opening shot of of the Crown Season 11 or something like that that would be awesome uh, other news, while I remember, we've been trailing Judas and the Black Messiah uh, in previous uh, episode. We were talking about it being part of an interesting release strategy by Warner for this year. I posted it on the socials because it was one of the most interesting films that looks to be coming out. Um, it was released in cinemas in America on the 26th of February um, and also streaming. There was no sign of it in the UK. It is now on available to stream in the UK uh, and it's on Amazon, uh, $5.99 to rent. So pretty reasonable compared to some of the other prices for new films. Uh, which I it's only just come out. I you know at time of recording, I haven't had a chance to watch it yet, but I'm definitely going to get on that. Okay. Um. I, I don't. Other than that, I don't think there's.
1: I've not. Like I said, I've not really seen a lot of these. Um, no. Soul one best animated. Yeah. No surprise. And there was two Pixar films in a year, which is rare. Pixar used to take ages to make films, and there was Onward and Soul in the same year. So I don't know what the yeah, fuck happened.
0: Then. I think they got a bit more um, production line going
1: now. They're part of the Disney world. I've not actually watched a Pixar since Incredibles 2.
0: Did Inside Out come out before or after Incredibles 2? Before in 2015. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Incredibles 2 was it was it was just the same again, really, wasn't it? Yeah. Um But
1: yeah, other than that, nothing. Yeah, no, anyway. I don't th-
0: I don't think there's any other real news to do, but I mean there's you know hopefully more to come. Um, With the rest of the year as things open up, Um, so getting around to round up of what we watched this month and how we've done against our New Year's resolutions. Uh, James, how did you manage on your ongoing uh, sort of struggle to watch more films than TV shows?
1: Oh shit! Uh, This is where I get my Netflix up and just see what tells me to watch again. Uh, I've I just have been watching TV shows. I'm sorry, it's it's just so much easier. I've been watching that Last Chance You on about some East LA college. basketball team just um and them trying to get to the state finals i started watching that Snowpiercer series but can not be arsed you know the one they've remade of the chris evans yeah one?
0: yeah i mean i, I really like the film i'm not sure about a series i'm not sure how you'd do that
1: have you watched murder among the mormons yet no it's i a, didn't even see, know that was a thing it's a tv it's incredible watch it it's amazing because mormons are usually seen as quite boring you know poly- <laughs> polyglots. what are they called again People that marry more than one. No,
0: polyglots. People speak lots of languages. Um, po- um, polygamy. Well, to be, polygamy. To be fair, if Mormons us.
1: are uh, no. If Mormons are speaking, you know, if they're you know having five wives, then they are speaking the language of love. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I watched John Wick three again, which is bonkers. Um, yeah. I started watching that Capone with Tom Hardy. Fuck, that was shit. No, that's <laughs> a shame. I tried to watch that Hostiles with um, Christian Bale and Rosamund Pike because they're two very good actors. but Back yeah. into it. Yeah, watched American Gangster again, which was good. Yeah, uh, I tried to finish that Maidie Queen of Scots. Shit, um, yeah. is there so, anything to, to be honest?
0: Cool? You've got you are pretty stuck into the films there. Actually, well, I, I didn't think finish right them.
1: There, I watched Lupin, which is that Omar Sy who is. Have we spoke about the Untouchables on this? Oh, not into Shabla. Um, not I think I think ref, the, I
0: think we've referred to it. I think um, there's definitely a case to be had to because that's that series with Omar Sy because he's awesome. He's yeah. very good. Yeah, I and mean, mm. we should be putting the remake of, of Into Shabla on our remake hate watch list, actually.
1: I've not, I've not even bothered to watch it. I
0: know. I, I just apologise to the audience for the, the, the frequent coughing you're likely to hear, because I think I'm coming down with a cold. You have got COVID. <laughs> I hope
1: not. I hope he's got not COVID. That. He's wanting furloughed, even though he's working at home. Yeah. A fucking benefit thief.
0: Just, everyone, don't worry. You can't catch COVID by downloading someone's podcast so yet <laughs> those <laughs> mutations are brutal yeah other than
1: that I don't think there's anything else I need to mention bro I think that's it
0: yeah I mean in terms of my um my first resolution was always to try and get around to some of those old classic films that it's been years since I watched um I did also try and watch Blade of the Immortal which is a, a Japanese film by Takeshi Miike it's a film of a manga just didn't find the time I really want to watch that but it's too violent and bloody and dark it's one for when everyone else has gone to bed I think is that the same uh- as Takeshi's Castle No, that's Takeshi Kitano. He's also a film director. Takeshi Miike is a uh, a different guy. Takeshi Kitano did The Violent Cop and Hannah B. Takeshi Miike did Audition, Itchy the Killer, and um, uh, 13 Assassins.
1: Not to take away from what you were waiting to say, but Takeshi just reminded me of my favourite fact of the month. If this is going to be a thing that's just miscellaneous, um, but my favourite fact of the month is that more people have been to the moon than have won Takeshi's Castle. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> just what you uh, said Takeshi there. Uh, oh, and a, I an started watching that
1: Escape from Pretoria, The one with Daniel Radcliffe playing... Yeah, John um, Carp
0: just got to pack it in with these uh,
1: escape sequels. <laughs> which seemed like an... I really like Daniel Radcliffe. I think he's actually a terrific lover. Yeah, he's,
0: I think he's made some interesting film choices, is not he? But other than that, no, crack on, sorry. Yeah. So yeah, in terms of finding something old to watch again, a classic that deserves to be seen again, I haven't seen in years. I, I went for City of God in the end. Um, <gasps> oh. If you remember, we were talking about that last year. We did a big conversation about how films like that get overlooked because they're foreign. You know, Parasite was the first foreign film to win Best Picture at the Oscars. Um, and we were talking about what a great film it was. And like, oh, I haven't watched that in years. Why haven't I watched it? So I just watched it again to see if it stands up. And it absolutely does. Obviously, it owes a debt to Goodfellas, but I actually think it's better than Goodfellas. Um, with all due respect to to Martin Scorsese, the film no, is just no brilliantly made, brilliantly, name. brilliantly made. It does a good job of showing, as well as like being technically, you know, beautifully made and exciting, and all of that. It just it could not do a better job of showing how the system is chewing people up and spitting them out in this ghetto in, in Rio de Janeiro. Um, honestly I loved it, it's brilliant if you haven't seen it you must watch it It it's just such an incredibly stunning film on so many levels Um, it also reminded me that it's director uh, he went on to direct a Hollywood film The Constant Gardener which I bought on DVD years ago and never got around to watching so that's now gone on the ever-growing classics and recommended watch list Um, the other thing I was going to pardon me
1: I was a way to say that Parasite wasn't the first film to win Foreign Language from the Best Picture? Because surely did Roma not win? No,
0: it didn't win Best Picture. Did
1: it win Best Director?
0: Yeah, yeah. No,
1: I'm convinced. No, I'm... I'm, I'm pretty not. sure. It, was, it, was, it received a... T- Everyone stand by while men look things up on the internet. Yeah, but not those types of things. <laughs> um, yeah, one won Best... No, wait. Why do they think it won Best Picture?
0: I think it might have won Best Picture at the Golden Globes. Accolades. It's nominated for best picture at one best uh, best director. Okay, that's and, it, and it won that's best okay, foreign yeah, language. Film. Me. I apologise. Yeah, I mean, but obviously, Roma is part of the you know the the, the increasing acceptance by the Academy of foreign films, right? Um, but back in two thousand and three, when City of God came out, you could forget it if you had subtitles, you know. Yeah, I, I, it's just it's one of the most brutal films you can ever watch. It's, it's
1: just it's really tragic and it's really sad. But I,
0: would uh, it a, I read a review. It said it's really interesting because it's actually not that bloody, but it's the, it's the fact that kids are, are are killing each other and there just seems to be no value to life. It's just so shocking. <laughs> so yeah, that's the City of God. I mean, it's no it comes as no surprise to anyone listening to this that's a highly recommended film. Um, the other thing I normally do when we do the roundup is uh, see how many films I watched on ITV four. This, this month, I only watched part of a film on ITV4. I watched about half of The Matrix, which was at least relevant, given its similarities to Hidden Gem, which we're discussing this month. Um, but yeah, th- that that was all. Um, the, the other um, uh, New Year's resolution that I had was to make 2021 the year of the Carpenter, uh, which means that each month I watch a John Carpenter film in ascending order, lowest to highest of their IMDb rating. Uh, And this month, uh, it was uh, Prince of Darkness. Now, this is one of the most underrated John Carpenter films. Its IMDb rating is 6.7, which the IMDb ratings are a bit skewed. I mean, anything between 6 and 7, it can be a good film that people don't appreciate, or it can be a fucking piece of shit. Well, this is a good film that is underappreciated. Um, It's one of the lowest rated films from Carpenter's peak period, the 80s. But I actually think it's one of its best. It's seen now as the middle part of his Apocalypse trilogy that started with The Thing and finished within the Mouth of Madness. Um, it's inspired by John Carpenter's love of Nigel Neal, who was a pioneer of British TV, especially with his Quatermass series. Uh, in fact, the, uh, the script for Prince of Darkness was written under the pen name of Martin Quatermass in tribute. Um, Nigel Neal had actually worked with John Carpenter before on a, on a sequel to Halloween. Uh, but then asked for his name to be taken off the film when he saw how violent the finished product was, which is, uh, odd that, you know, he'd, uh, uh, be surprised that a Halloween sequel would be violent. Um. So th- this came in the sort of the latter part of the 80s when John Carpenter was, was sick of being messed around by the studio. So he we went independent, got a low budget, but had complete control. Uh, and this film is kind of, um, it's basically about scientific theories and quantum physics colliding with religious prophecies about the devil returning to take over the world. So it's like a really interesting, quite ambitious take on the whole, you know, the devil's going to get us kind of storyline. Um Because of the low budget, the cast is not very well known, really, apart from Donald Pleasance, who was in Halloween Escape from New York. And basically, the storyline is an ancient artifact is found in a disused church, which contains something sort of terrifying and powerful. Uh, A priest played by Donald Pleasance has uncovered information from a secret group called the the Brotherhood of Sleep, which says the devil's going to take over the world, and you've got to fight them. The scientists come in because they want to study the artifact and see what's really going on. And they hole up in the old church where this is. They get trapped in there. Uh, and whenever anyone falls asleep, they all have the same dream, which seems to be a message from the future about, you know, terrible things happening. Um, so it's proper, um, you know, quite ambitious for its low budget, but they do quite a good job of it. Um, uh, it has a, a strange cameo from Alice Cooper as a demonically possessed street person who kills someone quite brutally with a bicycle. That's uh, quite a notable uh, highlight of the film. Um it's got all sorts of things that really stick in your mind after you've seen it. There's this is constant refrain, the sleeper awakens. Um, there's stuff people communicating through dreams. There's some stuff with mirrors which will creep you out the next time you're anywhere near a mirror. Um, and basically what it does, it builds a really creepy atmosphere with all, you know, all the usual kind of John Carpenter touches and the music. And then all hell breaks loose, literally. Um, I mean, I love it because it's got some really ambitious ideas, and despite its low budget, most of those ideas pay off. Um, like John Carpenter at his best. He you know, he manages to do a lot with it with a little. Um, and it has this really great inconclusive final shot where, you know, where, where's it going to go from here? Um, totally thoroughly recommended if you like a bit of uh, uh, you know, unusual kind of you know inventive horror. And uh, next month, we're getting into some of the more famous names. Next month, we're doing John Carpenter's The Fog, which more people I think will have heard of. But inspired by Alice Cooper's appearance in the film, I've decided to throw in the impromptu top 10 that we always do. And this impromptu top 10 is random film appearances by rock stars. Um, now, this is really kind of cameos or guest appearances. Um, don't, uh, uh, don't include sort of starring roles for Mick Jagger or Bowie, who really kind of you know, tried a proper acting career. Uh, and this top 10 includes uh, Guns N' Roses uh, in The Deadpool, uh, a Dirty Harry film, and shout out to Jim Carrey for his Axl Rose impression in a serious role in the same film. Uh, Gene Simmons from Kiss in Wanted Dead or Alive, Alanis Morissette as God in Dogma, Billy Idol in The Wedding Singer, Bruce Springsteen in High Fidelity, Anthony Kiedis from the Red Hot Chili Peppers in Point Break, Flea from the Red Hot Chili Peppers in The Big Lebowski, Gwen Stefani in The Aviator, Henry Rollins in Heat, and Mick Fleetwood in The Running Man. Is Gwen so- Stefani a rock star? Uh, well, if you say you know she was in a band that had had a guitarist, I would just about call her a rock star. I feel like you're reaching. <laughs> I needed to get it to 10. Also, what are your opinions on David Bowie? Not his acting, just in general. I thought he was... Um, I don't love all his music, but the stuff I like, I love. And I always thought he was a really interesting guy. He was always trying to do different things. Was he not a pedo? Um, in In that sort of sense that everyone seems to have forgiven and forgotten about where no one really cared how old the groupies were in the 70s, then yeah. So he was a pedo? Well, you know, not only was his music shit, but he was a pedo. That is, that is not a mainstream opinion about David Bowie. But um,
1: did you not have it? He had like a groupie who was like fourteen. and He started having relations with her.
0: That is alleged. Yeah. Yeah. No, I don't like David Bowie. Well, that's not the only reason David Bowie didn't make our top ten. But there you go. But we can make it that. now for the classics and recommended feature where we try and watch something from our backlog of great films we've been meaning to watch or been told to watch instead of the endless movie repeats rotating on tv Committing to do so for this feature has helped break the mental block around some of those films, and I mean we got to see and share our thoughts on great works like Lady Vengeance, Punch Drunk Love, *The Le Diabolique, Let the Right One In, David Cronenberg's Crash, Das Boot, Casino, The Blues Brothers, Train to Busan, and CSA, The Confederate States of America. We have a growing list of other films to do for this feature, partly due to various listener recommendations, and also now that James is co-hosting and looking at classics he hasn't got round to seeing. So currently, our watch list looks like this. Oh, fuck, here we go. (laughs) Wages of Fear, Hell or High Water, The Assassin, Spike Lee's 25th Hour, the Oscar-winning Japanese film Departures, Short Bus, The Tale of Two Sisters, The City of Lost Children, Under the Skin, Primer, Alphaville, Boyhood, The Constant Gardener, and Seven Samurai, which is an addition because James hasn't seen it yet. This month we're turning to a film that I've been meaning to watch ever since I bought it on Blu-ray three or four years ago, but it's been languishing on the shelf until now. Episode 11's classics and recommended feature is Hell or High Water. Now, James, ha- had you seen this before we uh, did it for the podcast? No, uh, I hadn't really heard much
1: about it. It seemed like quite a small a small scale production i saw that it got nominated for four oscars
0: yeah it was small but well regarded i mean the reason we have it got got, got it down as a hidden gem is it kind of did its job it kind of got the success it would have expected it had a reasonable budget but not huge it got a decent you know box office success for that and got lots of nominations and, and lots of people liked it so um it's kind of more of a modern classic people have really taken to this film um in terms of background it is um directed by a guy called david mckenzie uh, he's a Scottish director who, prior to this, did uh, start up a critically acclaimed British prison drama with Jack O'Connell. Um, it's interesting that some of the you know most interesting films set in the South and Midwest of uh, you know, South and West of America um, have actually been foreign. Um, you know, Ang Lee did a couple of films that were very you know well regarded westerns. Ridley Scott did Thelma and Louise, and and this I was surprised to find out it wasn't an American, or in fact, not a Texan who directed this because he really got the flavour of the area. But the main creative of the force of the film is um, uh, writer Taylor Sheridan, who wrote the script and has a small rock role in the film. Uh, Sheridan also wrote Sicario before this, and after this film, he uh, wrote and directed Wind River, which came out a couple of years later. Um, this film had a $12 million budget, $40 million box office, so it was a modest hit. It won the En Coutant Regard Award at Cannes and was nominated for four Oscars, so it did very nicely for itself. Um, it tells an updated story of the American West where now, you know, Texas, the the frontier, as it were, is just made up of lots of depressed little towns. They're sparsely populated. People barely get by. You know, they have guns and horses, but they're not free to roam or anything. They're just battling to keep their properties while banks and oil companies take everything over and their kids move away to find other work. Uh, and in that setting, you've got two brothers played by Chris Pine and Ben Foster. One's kind of a regular Joe who's divorced, trying to get by. Uh, the other, you know, Ben Foster is a recent release convict. He's a bit, you know, frankly, a bit mental. And they're robbing banks to pay loans and interests that they feel have been unfairly placed on the family ranch. All the banks they plan to rob are branches of the bank that's threatening to foreclose on the property. So they're stealing from the bank to pay the bank. So there's like an element of Robin Hood about all this, you know. Uh, they're doing a good job of robbing these banks, despite, you know, Ben Foster's character being a bit of a loose cannon. The only thing standing in their way are the two Texas Rangers investigating the robberies who are trying to catch them. Jeff Bridges, and Gil Birmingham. And that's kind of the setup uh, for a quite an atmospheric Western, I thought, James. It's like somewhere between a Western and a heist movie. I don't know what you thought. I thought it was... It was, it was I was surprised <coughs> by this one.
1: I'm also really confused that this was in the classics, because, again, it was released four years ago, but... I know. Um,
0: that's how we roll. yeah.
1: Fuck the stats cool. Um <laughs> But no, I was I thought I was really impressed with something. The only thing that I was confused about was when I saw that it was nominated for four Oscars. I had the ones that was nominated for. It was nominated for Best Picture, Best Original Screenplay, um, Something Else, and Best Sporting Actor, and it was for Jeff Bridges. So I did I wasn't this is nowhere near an Oscar-worthy performance from Jeff Bridges because we know what an Oscar-worthy performance from Jeff Bridges looks like. Yeah. Um I thought he was in it, but I thought his character was just very, you know, Jeff Bridges, where he doesn't really open his mouth and he just tends to squeal, you know, like,
0: all you know, that
1: kind of thing that he
0: does. I think it worked pretty like really well for the film, but I agree with you. I'm not yeah, surprised it, it didn't it, win, you know. It
1: was just kind of a, a, a Texas sheriff or a Texas ranger making racist comments to his, you know, ethnic um, partner. It was just a bit, ugh. Um, I actually thought the best performance in this film um, was Ben Foster's. I've, if there was going to be anyone nominated yeah, I for thought Best Boy really, really he, he was terrific. He was really, that, really good. I don't know if he was just doing really well because of the screenplay that Taylor Sheridan had wrote for this film. Yeah. Is it Taylor or Tyler? I think it's uh, Taylor. Taylor, yeah. Taylor. um, I, I don't know if he was just like, there was the bit where uh, he was talking to the receptionist um, who he subsequently um, woos into bed but the way he was talking there and just you know he was so smooth and you know hit every hit every note and hit every line wonderfully I thought he was really really good and I thought if there was going to be anyone that Os- nominated for an Oscar it would have been him
0: yeah I mean it was a, again it, um, you know the, the writing was very good and the performance of what was written was very good because there's that scene where he says something like um, you're going to think of me in your final days in the nursing home and giggle and yeah that was the line it's so charming but then like about only a few minutes before that, he's being an absolute fucking asshole of people elsewhere in the casino, and that guy always oh, a bit crazy, a bit of a loose cannon. He's the brother who never did well. That's so easy for that to be quite a stereotypical role, but he really made it three dimensional, didn't he?
1: Yeah, no, I thought it was it was really good. Chris Pine is always good value. Actually, I think he's he's never blown me away with the performance, but I thought he was really good. And this. this is probably his best performance I've ever seen.
0: Rather, than yeah, doing- I mean, his performance was required to sort of anchor the story, wasn't it? While well, Ben Foster got the more showy part. So. Um- the only thing that was a bit shit about it was the fact
1: that they had no proof that his brother was there for any of the heists. Like, it just, it was just kind of like, oh, yeah, he was definitely there because we shot him in the fucking head, but his brother wasn't. And it was like, he was stopped at a checkpoint for like five minutes for when you were shooting his brother in the head. So there was a couple of plot holes in the story that would have mm. been there. But in terms of actual performances, cinematography, and you know, visual value. It was a really good film. I really yeah. enjoyed it.
0: I mean, I like the way the cinematography was. There were a couple of moments. There's one bit where, um, uh, Jeff Bridges and, and Gil Birmingham, we go around a hairpin bend in, in pursuit of the bad guys. And, and Jeff Bridges has like two seconds to look over the side of the road and see that beautiful vista. And he says, Oh my. And then it's gone. And they're back in the story. It's almost like it's there, but, but that's all. And quite often there was some lovely cinematography of amazing countryside and, and these shitty metal shacks and kind of depressed towns in the foreground of it, I thought that was, you know, half the time the the, the cameraman did, told the story for them. You know,
1: there was a lot there was a lot to take in from this film. For, for it was actually surprisingly short. This film it was the um, it was only like an hour and thirty five or an hour. Yeah, and yeah,
0: yeah. And sometimes you think sometimes movie films are too long these days because they they did a lot in an hour and forty, didn't they? but um no i like i like it it was it does that thing but it it's it's a bit of a tired
1: old trope of you know the the robbers aren't always bad there's always a reason for them doing something you know mm-hmm. they're stealing the money because they're trying to you know basically provide for their family, obviously Ben Foster's characterism because he's a fucking job But Chris Prine is, is doing this because he has to. He's trying to secure the house for his sons to... Um,
0: yeah, and I, I think I think it's... People should watch the film for themselves and kind of uh, decide for themselves what they think Ben Foster's motivation was. Um, Wait, spoilers, by the way. Spoilers, by the way.
1: Spoilers. But, <laughs> spoiler you know, yeah, but yeah, like, you know, seconds ago. yeah but, that's the trope of why is the robber doing this? And it tries yeah, to yeah. make you like yeah. the robber. It's not like... You know, because bank robbers are, you know depicted as like for example the opening heist scene in the dark night nobody likes anyone in that it's a cool yeah, scene yeah. to watch but the joker is still the joker he's still an asshole.
0: yeah and and i think clearly the the film is trying to you know the height heist films like most kind of genres of film it, it's it's often about what other story are they telling and in this the story they're telling is what well what does texas look like today you know and i thought I thought there was some key moments that really kind of drove the film. There's the bit where the Texas Rangers are in, there was a robbery uh, and they're they're questioning people in the diner next door to the bank that's just been robbed. And one of the, one of the diners says the days of men making a living robbing banks are long gone. And it's like a callback to the old West and even something like Dillinger. It's like, you know, those days are gone. And it's like this people try, why are people trying to live that way when it's not, you know, it's, it's not possible anymore. Um, and, when the Texas Rangers are sitting outside one of the banks because they're hoping to catch the robbers, um, Gil Birmingham's character, who's got you know Mexican and Native American heritage, he says, "150 years ago, this land belonged to my ancestors, and the army took it away from us." And he turns to Jeff Bridges and say, "Now the same thing's happening to your people, but it's not the army doing it; it's those bastards right there." And he points to the bank that's about to get robbed. And it's quite clear what the you know storyteller Sheridan's trying to tell. Um, yeah. And one thing I really loved, and it's another thing where where Ben Foster, I mean, he did so much work for this film. You know, when he's at the casino, he's really antagonizing that Native American guy, really getting on his tits, and you think there's going to be a fight. Yeah. And the Native American says, I'm a Comanche. Do you know what Comanche means? It means everyone, everywhere is the enemy. Ben Foster says, you know what makes that me? Do you know what that makes me? And the Native American says, the enemy. And Ben Foster says, no, it makes me a Comanche. Although it was really interesting because, I mean, it's not saying, you know, n- not trying to suggest there's any value in like, you know, cultural appropriation, but it's like, that's what's going through Ben Foster's head. The idea, everyone is my enemy. And, you know, and, and it's like, there are different ways to, some people are just kind of sullenly accepting the way things are. And some people like uh, have picked up a gun and decided to, to call some shit. And I think it was really interesting just to see, you know, uh, a, a relatively simple story and a relative, relatively simple situation that, that the, the filmmakers are trying to shed light on. They just they manage to draw so much character and, and flavor out of it, you know? Yeah, no, I, I thoroughly recommend it. It's a very good film. It's um, I mean, the, the reason it kind of it harkens back to the Western era, it reminds me of a film uh, by Sam Peckinpah, Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid in a lot of ways. Uh, and firstly, because the film itself is reminiscent of that great era of like 1970s revisionist Westerns. It's got that same tone and pace to it. Uh, and also the whole film is kind of an elegy to a lost time. You know, it's like they, it basically things aren't the way they used to be. Uh, and, and it's interesting as Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid is set in the late 19th century and there's a similar feel to it. The whole thing is like kind of a last hurrah because in that story, you can't just ride around being an outlaw anymore. You're going to get caught. The wild West is over. And there are two characters here, one of who's trying to adapt to the world he lives in and make it through. Uh, well, the other one is just not ever going to be that kind of quiet, obedient, regular citizen. And um, it also, you watch that film, or it, you know, and then watch this film. It's a reminder that the freedom of the Wild West, it's always been a myth. It's always been an illusion. You know, there's never been any freedom out there, really. And in Billy the Kid's time, he was caught up in the Lincoln County War when small ranchers uh, were trying to fight the big big cattle businesses. Uh, and they lost um, because the big ranchers, big business was just winning out. The little guys didn't win back then either. And in this film, it's like the oil companies and the banks are just taken over. And this idea of being able to live independently uh, on a horse with a gun, you know, out in the West, it's it's dying. And maybe it was always an illusion. And I thought there's something very, there's very sad and elegiac about that. But seeing these these characters kind of making their stand as a result of that, it was, it's uh, it's got that Western flavor to it. Definitely worth watching. No. I completely agree. Absolutely. And now for the hidden gem feature about a film that is not as well known or as appreciated as it deserves to be. We aim to bring an overlooked and underrated film to your attention and say why this deserved to have more critical and commercial success than it got and why you should watch it or reevaluate it. For episode 11, we're discussing a film whose storyline may sound familiar, even though you haven't seen it. That's because it was overshadowed with a film with similar themes that came out at around the same time. This month's hidden gem is 1998's Dark City. So James, I think this is another one that you hadn't seen before we did the podcast. Yeah, I hadn't even heard of it. Yeah. I had no idea what it was about. Now, what we've, what we've got here is we've got a, a similar scenario to when we did Stir of Echoes as the hidden gem, uh, when that film came out at a very similar time to The Sixth Sense and was completely um, sort of overshadowed by it. Now, in that instance, I would you know argue that Stir of Echoes is the better film and deserve to be seen more than The Sixth Sense. I think this time we do have to acknowledge that you know there's reasons why The Matrix, uh, which came out at a very similar time as Dark City, is the more successful film, even though it has similar themes and Dark City got there first. Um, but essentially, you're, you're in similar territory. The idea that the world you live in is not as it seems to be. There are sinister forces out there watching over you, pulling the strings. And a central character who finds himself disoriented, uh, having the rug pulled under him and having to uh, having to fight battles in, in, in an unfamiliar world. Um, this Dark City follows a very similar um, theme to that. Um, it's directed by Alex Proyas, who made his name uh, directing The Crow uh, in the earlier 90s. Uh, it stars Rufus Sewell, who um, I think was just up and coming back then. He's now quite established on, many on television, I think. Uh, and unlike The Matrix's kind of cyberpunk, virtual reality, computer hacker aesthetic, um, this is very film noir and very low tech. Um, the city they live in, I think, has like landline phones, but no computers, no technology. It's maybe like something out of the 30s, 40s or 50s. Um, it's got a supporting cast of people like Kiefer Sutherland, Richard O'Brien, uh, William Hurt, Jennifer Connolly. Um, very interesting. It came out uh, a year before The Matrix. It was filmed down in Australia. And some of the same sets were reused by The Matrix um, from Dark City. So even though The Matrix looks very different and much more modern, some of those scenes in The Matrix, you know, where there's like that slightly green tinge and the the, the buildings and the police uniforms and everything have got kind of a slightly noirish kind of old world feel to it. Yeah, that's they. They used like they used some sets and stuff and some resources from Dark City to uh, to get that. I don't think there's any other kind of you know. I don't think anyone borrowed any themes or ideas from it. But there's just an interesting uh, there's an interesting kind of Venn diagram of like bits from the Dark City and a bit from the Matrix that actually you know co- coexist. Um, but uh, I mean, first of all, James, what did you think of this film? I thought it was fucking shit. <laughs> it was fucking trash. It was fucking trash.
1: It was, so, just, it was one of the most awfully directed cut films I think I've ever seen. It's disgusting. It Doesn't it hold like the record for the most cuts? The average shot length like, is only like
0: 1.8 seconds. I, cutting, I don't know if it holds a world record for that. I, I it's think. Cutting every two seconds. Fuck off. And 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 on that on on that bombshell we no we're not going to just stop this this feature i think it is interesting to always say that when you when you recommend a film or when you when you throw out a hidden gem you know it's not going to be for everyone um uh, i mean it's interesting because when you say that about the number of edits I, I mean i just didn't even kind of notice the number of edits and it's possible because i kind of grew up in that kind of 90s kind of adhd kind of infested mtv era where pretty much every film director came from either commercials or or music videos Uh, And I just just didn't even notice it. What I will always say is I believe you watched the theatrical edition of that, and I watched the uh, the director's cut, which is 10 minutes longer. And I'm pretty sure that the, the, the director's cut is only 10 minutes longer because they didn't force the director to chop, chop, the way that the theatrical version was so it's I, I, quite possible there's a reason why you know that that editing guy I, got on your tits I, in that I didn't even
1: I didn't even finish this fucking piece of shit it was there's, there's a reason this thing's a hidden gem because it needs to fucking stay hidden <laughs> like bearing in mind I don't like the Matrix film as much as I used to because when I first watched the Matrix was always the first film I watched in the series and that film is excellent it's great it's a great story I love watching it um, but then you watch the sequels. The sequels ruined the first Matrix film because it's like, oh well, look, look what you be, look what I could have had, you know, kind of thing. Um, but Matrix is a much better film. This this film was awful. You got Kiefer Sutherland pretending, you know, to be, you know, a scientist with like, you know, social like anxiety. Oh, it was, it was awful. It was awful, and I just messaged You saying I'm not finishing this, mate. I've got a, I've got a migraine
0: from watching this. It was a heap of shit. Heap of shit. So you've heard the counterpoint that while this is a hidden gem that I really strongly recommend, uh, it clearly isn't for everyone, and that could be a reason why it didn't meet with the success that uh, that it that it might have done at the time. Um, but to tell you a bit more about it, I, I think people who, um, who don't mind that kind of uh, fast editing and slightly stylized direction, I think they might still get some enjoyment out of this, and it's got a very film noir look to it. Um, it's uh, it's set in an unnamed city. Um, it doesn't look actually like any real place. It could be New York. It could be Chicago. It could be Gotham City, for all we know. Um, it's definitely a kind of film noir world. There's no technology apart from televo- you know telephones or television. It's never daytime. It's always dark. And there doesn't ever seem to be any any way out of this city. There's a place called Shell Beach that everyone knows about, but they don't quite remember how to get there. Rufus Sewell plays a man who wakes up in unfamiliar surroundings with no memories, has a broken syringe next to him, doesn't know why, and there's a dead body in the apartment, a a nude woman who appears to have been killed in some sort of ritualized way, and he's scared that he might have killed this woman and is some sort of serial killer and just doesn't remember. He gets a phone call from a stranger who turns out to be Kiefer Sutherland's doctor character who says, people are after you, get out now, and he escapes just as these creepy vampire looking people in hats and coats try to attack him. So that's the scenario in which you start to find out that actually this city isn't what it seems. It's some sort of illusion. Don't want to spoil the plot uh, for those who haven't been put off by James's dislike of it. Um, If you do want to see it, it it, it emerges that these shadowy characters are manipulating this city and manipulating the city's inhabitants for reasons that you find out during the film. And some of the similarities, or the, the, you know, the resonances of the matrix quite interesting. You've got agent Smith and agent whatever in, in the matrix. And then this, you've got like Mr. Hand and Mr something else they've all got these kind of you know they've only got surnames um it's got that sort of noirish sort of greenish tinge that the matrix had Um, but it's uh obviously saying it's got similar similarities to the matrix gives you a big hint about the story but the story plays out in a very different way um i mean i enjoyed all the twists and turns i like the way that rufus Sewell plays this very desperate disoriented main character who, who then turns out to have abilities that could change everything um, it's definitely far more of a film noir kind of fantasy than a cyberpunk sci-fi action film in the matrix. It's, it's a similar storyline done in, 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 very different ways. Um, I don't think the matrix ripped it off, um, because the script had been around for ages. And if you, if you look into the kind of the production of the matrix, the Wachowskis were trying to do uh, essentially, they, they, they said they'd like to do the ghost in the shell, uh, only live action ghost in the shell being a nineties, uh, anime. Um, but they definitely influenced each other because after the, after um, Dark City came out, The Matrix chose to film down in Australia and use some similar sets. So there's a lot going on there. I mean, probably the most interesting parallel, but in the case of both films, the directors haven't really done anything notable since. Um, I mean, James, you might be less surprised by that because you weren't impressed by this film. But Alex Proyas went on to do iRobot, the Will Smith vehicle. Uh, it's all right. It's nothing special. Yeah, I mean, I think Alex Proyas did a—he a, you know, did an effective job of that film. I don't think it was his fault that that film was disappointing. But, I mean, the, the, the disappointment of iRobot was that they took one of the most thought-provoking, deep, you know, pioneering works of sci-fi by Isaac Asimov and turned it into like a Will Smith action vehicle. I, you know, it could have been more than that. Although if Will Smith wasn't in that film, it wouldn't be as watchable. <coughs> oh, that's true will smith is really good in it and everything it's just um and it's, it's actually more thought-provoking than the average summer blockbuster but anyone who's read the original irobot would go oh you could have done so much more with what you had uh, he also did knowing now do you remember knowing uh yeah that was that film that was quite interesting i had nicholas quite interesting all the numbers
1: interconnected yeah. and it was like okay where's this going this could be something and then the ending was just aliens
0: the thing is, it, it wasn't just that the ending was bad. It was that, I don't know if you, I mean, this is how I felt when I was, I'm sure we watched it together. It felt like the ending was looming for about 35, 40 minutes. And I remember thinking, oh, it's not that, is it? Is it? Yeah. Is it really? Is Oh, fucking hell, it's not. And then you just spend the last 30 minutes going, I don't believe this is what they've done with this story. And it's honestly, it's one of the worst endings I've ever seen to a film. And, and the last film Alex Price directed, I mean, his his um, his career trajectory has been so far downhill was uh, Gods of Egypt, if you remember that. Oh, fucking hell. That's, um, yeah. what's his name? Um, the, yeah, the good-looking like Lannister Coster. brother and uh, Gerard Butler and just being absolutely ridiculous. And quite an ama- very amateurishly done, none of the CGI looks real, absolute disaster of a film. Yeah. Ever, I since,
1: same- ever since Zack Snyder directed a film about Greek mythology or Greek history, so to speak, Every film about gods has to be like that now. It's yeah, it's there was that one. What shit. was
0: it called? Was it called Immortals or something? The one with um, Mickey yeah. Rourke and Henry Cavill, which I actually really like, but again, it was done in the style of Zack Snyder's yeah, shitty lenses. I, don't I, know, I like actually that. think it's better than, than the other films in that genre, but you do wonder what you know. There was a lot of have all the great gods just been killed? Okay, yeah, wasn't sure, but yeah, um, uh, and I I did
1: read his filmography after this film, and I was like, oh, well, this makes sense then.
0: <laughs> I do like The Crow. The Crow's a very good film, I think. But again, I am I am a product of the 90s, and I, th- I think I'm a generation that is very, very forgiving of a kind of uh, film style that everyone else finds really hateful. Um, <laughs> so I'll just have to live with that.
1: Yeah, but I mean, so the, the
0: Wachowskis its really interesting. I mean, the Wachowskis, I mean, the Matrix, the original Matrix film is an absolute triumph. It's an incredibly successful film. I mean, it's really good. I mean, you might argue that, you know, see, I mean, I have heard people say they prefer Dark City to um, to The Matrix, and I do think that slightly is a self-conscious kind of hipster choice. Um, but there is, you know, if you were going to sort of talk about the drawbacks of The Matrix, it does seem like the world's going to be, you know, the world's going to be saved by Kung Fu. But, uh, you know, aside from that, it's very inventive. The story's well told. The action and the special effects, you know, did change cinema. But everything that Wachowski's done since then has been crap, really.
1: Yeah, um, what, what did they do out Well, with they, the they, Matrix? They,
0: well, apart from the Matrix sequels, which I think they just lost the plot, they just got s- totally self-indulgent. They did Speed Racer, which, as we said, I just oh, I couldn't even bother to watch that. It looked I, like, I had to it. think about
1: that for a second.
0: They looked like a $200 million cartoon in the trailer. I just couldn't be asked to watch it. Um, they did yeah. Cloud Atlas, which is crap. Oh, well, because shit. And it's crap because the original story is crap. It was never going to be a good film. And then they did Jupiter Rising, where... Um, Jupiter where, Ascending. Jupiter Rising's the porno one. Is it? Yeah, it's Jupiter, Jupiter Ascending. Jupiter Ascending. I do beg your pardon. So Jupiter Ascending, where... um, What's his name? The guy from Magic Mike and 21 Jump Street. Oh, Shannon Tatum. Yeah, Channing Tatum is a dog? <laughs> part man, part dog. I'm really not sure. And he has <laughs> a skateboard. He's doesn't he? Yeah, it's a, it's a very, very weird film. Um, so, Can I do another yeah. one
1: with... Um, Oh no, that was Luke Besson. I was thinking of the one with Dane DeHaan and Cara Delevingne. What no, was that no, the shit yeah,
0: film called. Yeah, it? oh, uh, something, something in the city of a Valerian and the yeah, city of a thousand. One. It's Luke Luke Besson going. Oh, I drew this in my uh, I drew Luke this Besson? in my bedroom when I was thirteen. Going and imagine how it didn't turn out to be very good. Imagine that. But yeah, I mean, so look, we'll have to, you know, we're teaching the controversy here. I love Dark City. I think it's a great film. I think you'll love it if you like a bit of film noir uh, with your sci-fi. Um, I think obviously you need to bear in mind that, you know, two people watched this and only one of them liked it. This probably explains why it's a hidden gem. But um, we're putting it out there as something I think is, is an interesting moment in, uh, in, in film history when two, two films uh, came out that did the same story in very, very different ways. Uh, yeah, and if you want an epileptic fit
1: or a migraine, then yeah, I recommend this film to you. Because,
0: and, and it's, that it's, should go on the poster.
1: It's unwatch. It's unwatchable. If you, you know, it, like that kind of establishing shot. Like my some of the best shots in history are like the like 1917s an entire establishing shot, basically, or clever editing to make it look yeah. like a you know, birdman. Great, that that uh, continuous shot in Atonement, which is a pretty boring film, but that shot's really good. I don't understand the necessity to cut and chop and change every two seconds. It just there's no justification for that. And when you do that for the entire film, you can go and fuck yourself. And then you made iRobot on gods of Egypt, so fuck you.
0: And, um, and if you're listening, Alex Perez,
1: go and fuck yourself.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and those are the two sides to that story. Now for our One That Got Away feature, where we dig deeper into cinematic history for stories of potentially great films that top directors tried and failed to bring to the screen. We look at what happened, why it didn't work, and what it might have been like if they'd been able to realise their vision. There are various reasons why film projects fail to materialise, as we've covered on previous episodes. This one is a classic example of dysfunction in the Hollywood system, and shows why if a film is controlled by the executives in the boardroom, instead of by actual filmmakers, the results are never good. The one that got away for episode 11 is Neil Gaiman's Sandman. So this feature is the centerpiece of what will become known as the Dreams episode of Double Reel. Our Year of the Carpenter feature Prince of Darkness included a secret organization called the Brotherhood of Sleep, who tried to ward off evil by communicating through dreams. Our hidden gem, Dark City, and its unofficial companion film, The Matrix were about the question of whether our lives are real or just a dream or illusion. And in their own way, our classic Hello High Water and, and the original Robocop, comments on the American dream and whether that's an illusion. I may be stretching this analogy a little far. The Sandman comics uh, that Hollywood tried to bring to the screen are the ultimate expression of this. The main character, Morpheus or Dream, is the personification of dreams. Uh, and Morpheus is also the, the key character in The Matrix, which uh, extends the theme, perhaps to breaking point. Uh, and Dream rules over the, uh, the the dream world that we go to every night when we sleep. Um, we've... Um, We've bent the rules a little bit for this feature because normally it's about a director, whether it's Catherine Bigelow or John Carpenter or someone else who's tried to bring their vision to the screen. This film never actually had a, a director or filmmaker properly in charge of it, which is why we've called this Neil Gaiman Sandman because it never quite had a, a, a top filmmaker at the helm to try and make it happen, which is, I think, part of the problem. So, I mean, h- how aware are you, James, of, of firstly this you know film attempting to be made and, and of the Sandman comics themselves?
1: I uh, never read them. Didn't know anything about it,
0: so I did a bit of reading on it just to
1: try and understand the the way they've tried. Well, not the way, but the process. Several processes they've had to try and get this film made. So, um, they had that guy who, um, who did he? He didn't. He obviously didn't write Pulp Fiction, but he was uh, Roger Avery.
0: Yeah, he co-wrote um, Pulp Fiction. Um, yeah, and collaborated or something. Like yeah, that. he's 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 credited with putting more most of the. Uh, the uh, the magic in the Bruce Willis uh, sequences of Pulp Fiction.
1: Okay, so yeah, I've I read about that kind of stuff and how there was a, they were going to collaborate with the Pirates of the Caribbean screenwriters Ted Elliott and Terry what was his name Rosio Rossio. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just, other than that, it just seems like it's a big mess. They've tried to make they've like had a few drafts and it's just become put into development hell. And then Neil Gaiman said he'd rather not see a film about the way made of Sandman if it's going to be shite and. uh He wanted someone who was going to be properly passionate about it, like Peter Jackson with Lord of the Rings. Yeah, Um, exactly. And then... But other than that, he he kind of recommended Terry Gilliam because he said he he trusts Terry Gilliam with pretty much anything. Um, Yeah, and and it it, it never quite happened, did it? David S. Goyer said he was going to try and do an adaptation with Joseph Gordon-Levitt, and then that was like another three, four years of just messiness. Mm
0: -hmm. Um, Yeah, yeah, so yeah, it, it's it's been a long and kind of winding road. This story. I mean, in in you know the background to it is Neil Gaiman himself. He was um he was part of a sort of a group of rising stars of uh, of comics in the 80s. Uh, Sandman was a part of a really big revolution in comic books that 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 uh, was turning around back then. Uh, you know, probably most famous is Alan Moore's Watchmen, which just changed what was possible with comics. And uh, you know, they became known as graphic novels, and people started them more seriously as an art form. Uh, Neil Gaiman's Sandman was one of the absolutely sort of pinnacles of, of that era. Um, he, he, you know, made a bit of a name for himself, nothing too famous. And DC hired him to do a new take on an old character of theirs, uh, the Sandman. And that's not to be confused with Marvel's Sandman, which yeah, probably the only watchable thing in Spider-Man Three was the Sandman character. It's not that character. This is Morpheus or Dream. He goes by several names, and here's his siblings and known as like the Endless, ancient beings have been alive forever and personify concepts like death, desire, and destiny. Um, it's really interesting. And Neil Gaiman completely revolutionized his character. He hadn't quite been like that when they originally did it in like the 40s. But DC gave him a free hand to do something brand new. And what he did is this strange, haunting, shocking sort of horror inflected and really quite beautiful series um, that really doesn't have a conventional narrative. But it's, I mean, honestly, it's so memorable. I mean, I've been rereading the comics you know, ahead of this. And you know, my, you know, my wife nudge me, go, go to sleep now. And I'm, going, I'm just going to read one more page. Absolutely stunning stuff, and um, the uh, you know it was the the foundation stone of Neil Gaiman becoming as successful as he is. And since then, um, you know, they filmed works of his like Coraline and Stardust. Um, he did a, a TV series called Neverwhere, and that was purposely written for TV. Uh, and I think this is why in the nineties they they you know wouldn't want to do a Neil Gaiman work as as a TV show and rather do it as a film because back then Neverwhere just like fell over. Um, it didn't have the budget. it didn't have the technical resources. So a very imaginative story just didn't um, didn't come alive because TV couldn't do it, and that's part of the reason they were trying to film it back then because there was just no I, no concept that a TV show could do uh, justice to to the imagination of some of this. The way American Gods, at least in the first season, did with Neil Gaiman, and obviously Neil Gaiman is very famous for um, co-writing the novel Good Omens uh, with Terry Pratchett, which is a, a great uh, a great novel which has uh, been filmed as well. So back to Sandman, it was a massive hit. You know, it, it just, it hit everything. It won awards. It was groundbreaking. It had huge sales, so the fans loved it. You know, it had a really dedicated fan base. It's doing phenomenally well. And in the 90s, um, you know, Tim Burton's Batman had sort of increased the interest in there being big screen adaptations of comic books. They started to try more and more things. Also, Time Warner, the owner of Warner Brothers, they bought DC Comics back then. So that's why, you know, Warner did the Nolan Batman series. They, you know, they basically owned the property. Um. So they set out to do Neil Gaiman's Sandman. And when I was reading it, I, I think it's the case here that Neil Gaiman didn't have complete ownership or veto on the film. You know, when, when you write for DC, when you write for Marvel, you know, you might come up with it and you might have some say, but you don't own it. You don't, you know, own the rights to sell it and choose. So he kind of, he was a very dissatisfied spectator watching this happen. And, and from the outset, he didn't think it was suited to being made into a film. He famously said that turning Sandman into a two-hour big screen adaptation would be like taking a baby, cutting off both its arms and one of its legs and its nose, cramming it into a small box and filling that box up with meat, Um, which, if nothing else, gives you an idea of the kind of imagery Neil Gaiman likes to deal in. Um, Where where James picked it up, yeah, they brought in some writers in the late 90s, uh, Rossio and Elliot. They did the the Zorro film, the Bandera Zorro film. They later did Shrek. Now, Now, Neil Gaiman quite liked that script, and things started to progress. And it all started to go wrong where someone called John Peters got involved. Have you heard of John Peters, James? No. So this guy's an interesting character. He's a film producer who got his start on the business after working as Barbara Streisand's hairdresser. Because, you know, that's how you get the qualifications to become a film producer. I'm with you. His chief strength appears to be bluffing his way onto productions and then getting everyone to go along with his shit ideas, even though they're obviously shit ideas. Um, He was attached to Tim Burton's Batman and it, Although he's, you know, to be honest, he's credited with, with, you know, being a fairly solid producer on that and Batman was a successful film. But reading up on it, John Peters was the one telling Tim Burton to stop making it so dark and moody and just make it more like a comic strip. I think most people agree that the bits of Tim Burton's Batman that work the least well are the comic strip bits. and The bits that work well are the, the dark and moody bits, right? And if you want to see what that era of Batman looks like with all the dark and moody stuff taken out and just shitty comic strip nonsense, you can watch Batman Forever and Batman and Robin. That's the John Peters vision of a superhero film. So, you know, don't say I didn't warn you. Um, an interesting side note about uh, John Peters. At the same time as he was, uh, you know, getting involved in this production and, and and ruining it, he was ruining an attempt to make a new Superman film called Superman Lives. Uh Kevin Smith, uh, who did Clerks and all of those films, he he tells some great stories. You can go on YouTube and see them um, about how he was working on a script for Superman and the encounters he had with with John are Absolutely hilarious because he's a really great storyteller. He didn't want Superman to wear the suit. He didn't want Superman to fly. He didn't know Superman was originally called Kal oh. He wanted sh- he wanted Sean Penn to play Superman. He's about five foot four. <laughs> And he was obsessed with there being a a, a a big fight at the end between Superman and a giant spider. Um, and no one could uh, understand why. Yeah. And uh, he, he eventually got to to see that something like that come to life because he, he was the producer and creative force behind Wild Wide West, that massive failure Will Smith film where there's a giant mechanical spider at the end. So let's just say that John Peters' aesthetic vision for films probably doesn't match something a bit more nuanced like Sandman. Right, okay. <clears throat> so the writers involved at this point, they're horrified by what John Peters is suggesting. They're on the verge of walking out. But as sometimes happens, they leaked their script so that other people could see it and it gathered some interest. Uh, and you mentioned Roger Avery, James. That's how Roger Avery heard about the script, right? Because John Peters was just sitting on this script and he was telling the writers it was crap and they'd do everything different. And And because Roger Avery got to see the script, he went, Oh, I like this. Can I do a draft? And he did a draft that kind of built on what the original writers did, and Neil Gaiman liked this as well. He said, "Yeah, I can't, this 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 is okay." Um, now, Roger Avery's not got the biggest like film uh, catalog. I don't think he's the kind of great film director to bring this to life, but he had a decent crack at it. Um, uh, he uh, he came up with some ideas that were still kind of aligned to how Sandman should be, but John Peters was not having it. He just he he was determined to do it his way even though Neil Gaiman hated it, even though the writers hated it. So Avery parted ways, and John Peters basically threw out everything everyone had done before and commissioned a new script. Now, this script is notorious. Neil Gaiman was quoted at the time saying, not only is it the worst script uh, the worst script adaptation of his work, but it's the worst film script he has ever read. Ooh. He wanted to turn Sandman into nothing but another standard blockbuster with costumes and fistfights. Sandman would wear a, a suit with tights and a cape and have fistfights with bad guys. None of the original kind of dark stuff where he fight you know, he's having some kind of mental or, or figurative battle with Lucifer. None of that, right? Um, and John Peters, who's clearly guarding the writer's hand here, was intent on including story elements that were impossibly cheesy and stuck in the late 90s. Uh, the plot revolved around teenagers at a slumber party holding a seance uh, and capturing Morpheus. There had to be a rave club scene because that was very trendy back then. And if you want to see what that looks like on film, just watch The Matrix Reloaded. No, in fact, don't watch Matrix Reloaded, just to be warned. The the story had to be tied in some way, according to John Pitch, to the approaching millennium. Um, because you we were the same, but in the, in the late 90s, they thought Oh, the millennium's gonna change everything, Y2K. Some people believe Y2K is gonna be the end of the world. No one, you know, no one, you know, could get John Peters to to listen to that, like, mate, it's nineteen ninety-eight. By the time this film is finished, it will be the twenty-first century, the millennium will be over. Drop out in it just wouldn't have it. And this version of the script was um was leaked and it was absolutely savaged. Uh there's a website called Ain't It Cool, which isn't as it used to be quite influential, not not as big now, ripped it apart. Clearly called out John Peters as, as totally ruining this. Fans of the show, were, of the, the original comic, they were absolutely up in arms, calling out these terrible speeches, really cheesy dialogue. There were action sequences, which were this poor ripoff of Terminator 2. And, and the internet absolutely savaged this production. And this is the much smaller scale, late 90s internet. I can only imagine what the modern internet would do to a piece of shit like this now. So that pretty much did for that project. It went quiet for several years, and John Peters turned his minuscule attention span to other projects. Now, a couple of other people tried to do it in subsequent years. They're not very well known. Um, there's a guy called David Shaw who was a, pr- a horror writer. He had a go at it, but it didn't really happen. As you mentioned, James Joseph Gordon-Levitt was attached from about nine, uh, 2010 uh, with David S. Goya, who uh, people m- may recall, he wrote Batman Begins, co-wrote Dark Knight, Blade, um, and he was actually actually wrote Dark City. Um, it's not all good news though. He also wrote Batman versus Superman, so uh, he's not it. he's, oh, he's shit. not infallible, shall we say? Um, apparently, the rights got a little bit complex. One minute, jo- Joseph Gordon Levitt's dealing with Warner's, and the next minute he's dealing with a new line because the rights were sold from one part of the film business to another. So, Joseph Gordon Levitt quit. Uh, and finally, it, it, it's 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 making it to our screens now, but it's a TV series. Netflix is hoping to release this at the end of 2021. Uh, Tom Sturridge, who people might know, is a youngish actor, is playing Dream. Gwendolyn Christie from Game of Thrones is playing Lucifer. Uh, the showrunner is a guy called Alan Heinberg who's he's produced some quite successful shows although nothing in this genre and David S Goya is 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 still on board as the principal writer the people are quite excited about this now um so we're eventually going to see it as a TV series but not a film um but I mean, I mean, personally, I think part of the problem was that none of the people involved were ever of the caliber required to make it work. I mean, Roger Avery's not done that much. I mean, the writers had done a Soro film. They hadn't written anything. And you know, we're not talking about, you know, Charlie Kaufman's going to write the script and Guillermo del Toro's going to direct it, you know? There was none of that, you know, real kind of investment in, in genuine kind of top-line talent. Um, and I'm actually looking forward to the, seeing the TV series. Um, I don't think it would ever have worked as a film.
1: Yeah, Um it's interesting because now that you've, you've spoken about it at a great, great length, it seems like the TV series seems the best way to do it. Yeah. Because it sounds like trying to cram all of this into one film, that's the, I mean, with comic books, you know, you're getting, you know, at least an hour's worth of content per edition of the comic. So that's, mm-hmm. you know, what's... I don't actually know the format of the comics, but I know that if you've got a lot of source material, it's probably better to flesh it out in a TV show, which is what we'll speak about in a second. The
0: the storylines work perfectly for for a series. I mean, the the scripts they're originally writing were kind of based on the first two big collections of Sandman, Preludes and Nocturnes and Seasons of Mist. One of those storylines is that uh, a human that Dream had been in love with uh, uh, killed herself and ended up in hell, being tortured for centuries. He decides to go to hell to rescue her. Pisses Lucifer so much off that he quits and closes hell and expels all the damned souls and all the demons and everyone's got to deal with the fact that the dead are now walking around the earth again, and um, uh, dreams got to sort it out and now all of these supernatural creatures from angels to like the Norse gods want him to give them give give them hell to manage and as you read it it's brilliant you just think yeah that's a show you could you could you could deliver these storylines over several episodes on an arc far better than you could ever do it in a film oh, yeah. The only thing I worry, and it'll be interesting to see how it turns out, is I'm not sure how well this will do on any format. I mean, did you see the TV series of Watchmen? No. Or or see the film?
1: Well, Yeah, I've seen the film
0: Watchmen. uh, So
1: so, (laughs) it's only worth watching for about six minutes of a a two-and-a-half-hour film.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, one one of the things about Watchmen is everything's photorealistic. You see, like, the, the colors and the style and the costumes and the jumping out. It's all kind of filmed like it's really happening which is kind of a weird thing to say. But in the comics, the drawing has a certain style to it. And this is one of those comics that's really impressionistic. One minute, you know, Dream is standing on a mountain and then it melts. Uh, And sometimes he looks um, very human and sometimes he looks almost like he's just a a cloud in a vision. And I think you would miss some of the atmosphere of it if you just did people in costumes and photorealistic CGI. So it'd be interesting to see how the TV series does that because I think it would almost be, some sort of blend of live action and animation that just gets that impressionistic sort of dark atmosphere across. I don't think you just point a camera at people and expect, like, good CGI to pick it up. I think you really need to get that visual aesthetic right. Yeah. I think, overall, I think it was just too far ahead of its time to be successful back then. Um, but I do say that the, the kind of storytelling in TV could accommodate this now, but it'll be interesting to see how this goes later in the year.
1: What film was it that Christopher Nolan wanted to direct? Um, but waited a bit because the... Was it Christopher Nolan? I know he had to wait to direct Inception because he wasn't really trusted with a, a blockbuster until he kind of proved himself, so he did it with the Dark Knight trilogy. But I'm sure there's a director who wanted to direct a film but wanted to wait because the CGI wouldn't have done it justice, if you know what I mean. Yeah, I think there's a few of those. There's a few, I, I can't remember if Christopher Nolan. That does spring to mind, but... Yeah, I mean there's I guess the, I think the frustration is is that because fans fans of the Salmon, when did it come out in the 80s. Yeah, late 80s and then went so, on to like
0: 75 issues. So it was really so long
1: running. Those guys those guys have been waiting for, you know, over 30 years now. Um but like sometimes you got to kind of wait for it. To, would you like uh, the guy himself Neil Gaiman said, "Would you do you want a shit one or do you want to wait?" till it's you know properly fleshed out but yeah. hopefully this series does it justice um it's got a good cast um i'm interested to see how it goes it's in good hands is it is it a hbo one or is it a i think it's netflix netflix okay so it's in good hands we know that it's yeah. uh it's with people yeah. that know their shit so not the koreans this time but yeah absolutely
0: the koreans um, know their shit but not they're not the only people who know their shit Do you
1: know, I mean, this is a real adhd moment but have you heard of korean barbecue yes i love like, korean we, barbecue where you just go into a restaurant and they just fucking throw a lot of meat at you and you cook it yourself. Oh, Fuck absolutely. Bloody love me. it. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> go Korea, but the South one, not the North one.
0: Yeah. So we we, we in, on this show, we endorse Korean film, Korean barbecue, and salmon. We close the first rule of the episode with the remake Hate Watch. This is where we relax our usual calm and balanced approach to our film discussions and rant at the lack of originality in the Hollywood boardroom. Whether they call it a remake, a reboot, a reimagining, we don't like it and we want it to stop. There are, of course, examples of good remakes when they were justified and well done. This feature does not discuss those films. What we look at here are remakes that disrespected the memory of a film that they should have left well alone. This month, we have a classic example of a remake devised by the studio bean counters with no input from anyone creative and entirely predictable results. The remake hate watch for Episode 11 is the 2014 version of a Robocop. Now, James, this is another one that you just kind of couldn't continue with and you switched off uh, before the end.
1: Well, the way I saw it was is that Dark City was just giving me a headache. I reckon I, <coughs> I wouldn't have mind watching the whole of Dark City if it wasn't just so poorly edited. But the way I saw this one was is that I didn't like the first Robocop that much. Or it's all right. It's a bit cheesy. Or, and I just, you know... It doesn't it's not something that really appeals to me like a a robot cop like meh meh for me it's just not my thing, and it was it was before a morning shift where I was up at four thirty in the morning to drive you know half an hour to work, and it was getting to like it was getting to like eight o'clock and I was getting less and less sleep by staying up to watch this piece of shit film, so I thought fuck it Th- this this will be my review of the film I didn't fucking watch it because it was that shit and I wanted my bed so <laughs> like the, the, nothing fucking happens like. It's just it's just crap. Like I didn't watch it to the end. I, I could kinda tell that it wasn't gonna get any better. Um I was just that was like he's he's gonna, you know, become he's gonna become the robot cop, it's gonna be really bad CGI, he's gonna do the big shooty bad bad against the people that wronged him, and that'll be it. And that's probably what happens. Is that what happens? Uh pretty much. Yeah, probably, fuck probably, it. So probably, so probably shitter I was, than that. I was right to go to bed. So I didn't need to watch it. I can tell you what happened. Didn't see the last out of it. Cool.
0: You see, I mean, I'm someone who grew up with and was a fan of the original, Uh, and this is like you know the Total Recall remake for me. uh, You know when again, and it's another Paul Verhoeven film. This was ill served by a remake. Um, Those films were very of their time. You know, I'm not surprised that people who aren't themselves a child of the '80s don't love it like I do. But the original Robocop is brilliant. It's a clever satire. It's brutal. It's excessive. It, it's got some very very intelligent political points that it makes under cover of this very cartoonish story, and love it or hate it or not be interested in it because it's not your thing. It's imbued with the values and the and the the style and the story and the world of the eighties. It has a proper go at like the Reagan kind of uh, regime and. You know, really captures the spirit of, of its age. And whether you love it or hate it, it's it's there for a reason. And it survived and is loved by people and is still talked about for a reason. Like Total Recall, like Predator. You know, that doesn't mean it's brilliant in every way, but it means it's it's real. It's something that someone said, this is a story I want to tell. I'm going to tell it this way. I'm going to tell that story. And it's completely over the top. You've got bad guys snorting coke off hookers' tits and then being shot in the kneecaps. It's totally over the top, okay? I get it. But at least it was, you know... It's something worth talking about, and this is just absolutely mind-numbing. They've quite clearly said RoboCop is a a famous film. We will get some people to come and see a new RoboCop film. We'll throw some CGI at it. We'll, you know, Gary Oldman and Michael Keaton will, you know, turn up and choose some scenery, and they'll probably be watch, you know, vaguely watchable. It's, you know, they tone everything down to PG thirteen, stroke twelve absolutely nothing interesting absolutely no flavor this is like someone who's taken the recipe for you know a great piece of fine dining or a classic you know dish and just turned it into like a bland sachet where you just add hot water it's just you know and i can't even actually bring myself to be particularly angry about it because as soon as this came out i just went yeah i know exactly what they're going to do with this they're going to make it completely you know, lacking in flavor and lacking in reality. It's got none of the original ideas about you know what, um, you know, the you know the cities of 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 the US at the time are starting to fall apart and the satirizing this law and order attitude. All of the clever satire has been replaced with Samuel L. Jackson doing some fucking impression of Fox News that's not remotely entertaining. And yeah, a guy gets a cop gets injured. They turn him into Robocop and. Nothing interesting happens for about two hours, and and not only that they do they do a really crap job. Of like of the whole concept, it's like um, they introduce the idea that his software overrides his free will, and but they only introduce it to sort of show, and that's why he can shoot really fast now. They just forget that concept because no, no one wants to examine the storyline. It's just a plot point. Um, they can switch him off remotely at any time. Well, wh- where's, the, where's the jeopardy in that? Robocop can be switched off at any time. Well, well, that's. This, none of this mean none of this means anything, does it? There's no element of Robocop kind of breaking off and fighting back, really, is there? The, yeah. th- I mean, it's like they. I don't know if you were still watching for this, but they try to allow Robocop to have a relationship with his family after he comes back. I saw that bit, yeah. It's like how is that? How does that even work? Is he going to tell his son it's bedtime and he has five seconds to comply? <laughs> what, what sort of relationship does he have with his wife have they given him a robocock to take a take care of business in the bedroom I'd rather watch the film robocock to be honest which you can there is a porn parody called robocock fuck how do you know that I'm a man of the world and I know things alright like Tyrion. <laughs> Tyrion shaggister but there's just no you just think every single second of this film I was just thinking so what I And mean, like they hire Michael Keaton as an interesting actor nothing interesting happens um the guy that Jackie L. Haley's quite an interesting actor, but isn't that? And he's, he's just the henchman. Yeah, he's the baddie, the proper baddie. So what? Um, same with Gary Oldman. Same with Omar from The Wire. They Every single person has done 10 times more interesting work than they get to do in this film. Really, it's just... This does about as much with the idea of Robocop as an insurance advert that's on British TV at the moment that uses the idea for a 20-second parody. It, yeah. Honestly, it's it's exactly like Total Recall in that they should not have bothered. Because because why bother? It's like, yeah, we have Robocop, and this happens and that happens. Was that okay, everyone? Everyone's like, yeah, I ate some popcorn. Okay. Yeah, know. You know, if it, it was getting made
1: because they wanted to try and do the story justice, but I feel like the first Robocop, while I didn't like it, it's kind of got that iconic status of, you know, it's it's fun it's you know people like watching it it's cheesy he goes in with his guns and shoots the fuck out of all the bad guys <laughs> cool you know there's a bit there's a there's something there that people already enjoy whereas what the remake that i think of when when i think they needed to know, like if they were going to do a remake and they needed to do it properly it was um what do you call it the the dread remake judge dread yeah. Cuz that Judge Jed film was Sylvester Stallone was fucking shite. And then they did it properly with Carl Urban and uh yeah, Lena, absolutely. Lena Headey or Lena Headey.
0: Lena um, Headey, Lena, Lena Headey,
1: Lena Headey, Lena I yeah, don't yeah, know yeah. how to pronounce that. But they did they did that with her. and She was really good in it and he was really good in it and it's a really good Tower Block film and it's awesome. And they but needed but that, to do it because the first film was shit. But it's now like let's let's kind of cash in and not do the story justice and try and do something interesting and make it better. Let's just cash in.
0: The studio just doesn't have the kind of will to make a film like this, you know, work properly. Because I, mean, I mean, Dread was too violent, and they didn't, you know, they didn't market it, they didn't give it any support. You know, they they marketed this, rammed it down everyone's throats. The thing is, they hired the guy who did Elite Squad, which is quite like a hardcore Brazilian action film, um, but then they made him water it down to a PG thirteen. Why bother? You know, at least Total Recall didn't like pretend it was going to be any good because they got Len Wiseman to direct it. The guy who did those fucking Kate Beckinsale vampire films this was just it's almost like they hired some people who are actually capable of being good and in, and forced them at fucking gunpoint to make a film that just has nothing interesting about it it's just honestly why bother give that 100 million dollars to charity guys there was no reason to make this film yeah I, it, was, it was shit are we running out of remakes to hate on, or are there still those to go through? Because we might have to change this to Hate Watch and just pick a film that's fucking I, shit. I, there are many remakes on the list, and and they're intending to make more. There is a, a dirty, filthy, nasty rumor that they're remaking Big Trouble in Little China. Oh no! And I and I might fucking turn into a toxic internet edge lord if that happens. Oh no, please don't. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to take an intermission now, sorry for interrupting the flow. The second reel of the podcast is available to download now, and we hope you will rejoin us soon for the exciting conclusion of this month's episode. When you do, we'll be taking on the big conversation. This month, we're looking at whether TV has overtaken film as the leading screen art
1: form, especially for adapting great stories and doing them justice.
0: That's all for the first reel of this month's episode of the Double Reel Film Podcast. The episode is recorded and edited with the help of Anchor FM, Audacity, and Zencaster. Anything that sounded good was down to them, and anything that sounded crap was down to us. The music was Mistake the by Kevin MacLeod. We'll give you a full set of credits at the end of your tour of the episode, including info on the films and topics we discussed. Look forward to joining you for another helping of nerdy chat in just a minute. See you on the other side.
1: Mr. Sandman, why did you go boom, 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 boom? Take me to places that I'd never know. Boom, 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 boom.
0: Oh, sorry. <laughs> no, that's going in the outtakes.
1: Oh, <laughs> fuck me right in the half hole.